Hello, everyone. Welcome to our service this morning, where we gather to hear God's Word, to listen to His voice, to delve into the Scriptures, and to praise Him. Spend a few moments, get yourself ready for uh, the service this morning. The, uh, we have the Sacrament of Holy Communion after the service, and um, we encourage you to get some elements, some bread or wafers, some juice or even water, Get that ready for after the service, um, or, sorry, not after the service, as part of the service. And then after the service, Reverend Ray Nutley and I will also be doing an extended communion for those who want to actually physically come into the church and receive communion and prayer from us. So gather around, get ready, we'll see you in a minute or two. Morning, everyone. If you've just tuned in, welcome to our service this morning as we gather to hear God's Word to us, to listen to the Scriptures, to spend time in prayer, to have God's Holy Spirit minister to us wherever we are, whether you be in Bundaberg around the corner or somewhere else around the world, whatever time you're watching this or listening on the podcast, may you know God's blessing upon you. Psalm 18 verse 1 and 2 says, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold. As we begin the service, we hear God's word to us, and I encourage you to really enter into the service, to be part of what is taking place. Tell us where you're watching from Make some comments, engage with us, ask some questions, and we'll get to those, if not immediately, then through the week. Hit those reaction buttons if there's a point of the sermon that makes sense to you or that you, uh, that you resonate with. Let us know and, uh, and be part of the live stream. And I say to you this morning, the peace of the Lord be with you. Thank you. If you are watching with somebody, take a moment and pass God's peace on to them as well. Let us pray. Lord, we echo the words of the psalmist as we declare that we love you, and you are our strength, you are our rock, you are our fortress. We cherish the fact, Lord, that we can have faith in you that no matter how we're feeling, your hand directs our lives. You guide us. You show us the way. That whether you feel close or far, Lord God, it isn't about our feelings, but it's about the knowledge that you have promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And in that, we have full faith. We have complete confidence. For you're a God who keeps your word. You're a God who lets no prayers fall on deaf ears. You're a God who never ignores us and whose spirit is always with us. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray this morning in the service of worship and in this sacrament of Holy Communion that we will enjoy together as well as afterwards. We pray that you may be present, that we may feel that sense of connectedness with you, that we may know that you are speaking to us, that what is said may touch us and challenge us, that we would find, Lord God, a freshness in your voice to us this morning. And that, Lord God, as we take the sacrament, we would feel connected to you in a deep and personal way, knowing something of your faithfulness in what you have done, Jesus Christ, for each one of us. May your name be praised. We ask, Lord, for forgiveness for those things which have separated us from you. 
not that you have left us, but we have turned our backs on you. And we thank you, Lord God, that what we celebrate on the table this morning is the knowledge that the death on the cross brings forgiveness for all things, past, present, and future. And that as we come to receive the body and blood of Christ, we receive that grace entering into your death so that we enter into your resurrection. And so, Lord God, we commit this time to you now in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, who taught us when we pray to say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Friends, a couple of announcements for those who are part of the regular Bundy congregation. They, uh, on the 13th of September, we will be gathering at half past 11 for a special congregational lunch. Those details were in the newsletter, and if you need more details about that, please get hold of the church office. All of our contact details are on the webpage. And then a reminder again, just that after this morning's service, from half past 10 to half past 11, uh, Reverend Ray Nutley and I will stay behind in the church to serve communion to anyone who would like to come in and receive it. There is an opportunity to receive communion and also to be prayed for this morning as, uh, as that is, forms part of our service. Our reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 11, and I'm going to read the whole chapter and into the first three verses of chapter 12 as well. You may recall that in last week's sermon, when we looked at the life of Enoch, we read just a small passage from Hebrews 11, and uh, you'll hear a little bit later on in the service that, that that's been part of my thoughts over this last week, and I would like us to look at the whole of Hebrews chapter 11, and about how our faith um, works in connection with our feelings. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel speaks still, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken... He was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God." And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful, who, because she considered him who made the promise faithful. And so from this one man, and he is as good sorry, so, and so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. 
People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of that country they had left, they would never have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the, the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut out the mouth of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us they would be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with, pers the per with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Part of our worship is to bring before God our offerings of thanksgiving. We bring those which have been deposited directly into the church account, as well as those which have been brought into the office. If you would like more details on how you can uh, give in terms of your worship to God, the details are on the church Facebook page and in the comment section uh, below this video feed. We bring those prayers of thanksgiving to God, and we also bring to Him our prayers of intercession. Let us pray. Lord God, in these moments, we read of the faith of all of these people. 
We thank you, Lord, for their faithfulness and for the giving that they have given. We read in the last uh, few verses how Christ faithfully gave all, enduring the cross in order that we may have life, taking such opposition from sinners. And as the writer says, it gives us strength and enables us to be people who are filled with appreciation and thanksgiving for what has been done. We pray that you would receive these gifts that we give today, those put into the account, those given in through the office. Lord, they are offerings of our thanksgiving. There are ways in which we seek to bless you with what we have. And they come, Lord, together with the greater gift of our whole lives. Use them to build your kingdom. We pray for those, Lord, who are in need of our prayers. We think of those who do not know you. We think of those whose, whose faith is faltering. For those, Lord, who have lost their sense of hope. For those, Lord, for whom the circumstances of life have become overwhelming. For those, Lord, who face a difficult road with treatments for illnesses. For those who grieve the loss. Today, especially on Father's Day, Lord, we, we thank you for, uh, for the fathers amongst us and for the fathers that we have. We pray, Lord, for those for whom this day is a difficult day. For those who don't enjoy a, a wonderful relationship with their fathers. For those whose fathers have passed away. For those fathers whose children have passed away. We commit them to you. And we thank you, Lord God, that as Heavenly Father, you embody for each of us all the most perfect and beautiful characteristics of fatherhood. And as we remember our dads today, as we rejoice in what they have meant in our lives, we thank you, Lord, for the perfect example that you are, for the wonder it is to be able to call you Father, Abba. We pray your blessing, Lord, upon this service now, and ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. That each word we hear would be your word and, and the voice we hear would be your voice. Speaking relevance into each of our walks with you. In the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I wrote some time ago in a newsletter that I hope I never, ever hear the word unprecedented again. I could probably add a few more words to that. 2020 would be one of them. But I think unprecedented, we can stick with that. I hope I never hear it again. I'm so tired of hearing that we live in unprecedented times. But the reality is that it is true. And these unprecedented times have brought out the very best and the very worst in people and in society. We've seen the best as people have cared for each other, reached out to each other, sacrificed freedoms for each other. But we've seen the worst when the exact opposite has happened. The panic buying, the refusal to wear masks, the refusal to adhere to, to lockdowns and, and social distancing because it's impinging on an individual's freedoms or an individual's rights, and what happens in the rest of the community isn't necessarily given too much thought. It seems to me that the longer we're in this pandemic fight, the more we see of the worst side, as sacrificing for others seems to give way to personal desires, sometimes even to political games, and the goodwill only seems to go so far. Admittedly, you cannot paint everyone into the same brush. There are many wonderful examples of the best, uh, the best side of people. But it is undeniable that these unprecedented times, when everybody is under threat, they have laid bare this underlying current of self-centeredness that is slowly taking society to the point of individual desires trumping care for others.
Society seems to be moving more and more towards an egocentric uh, individual place where the individual needs, where my needs, where what, what pleases me becomes the main focus of life. You see it in all walks of life. Very often it's about each single person and, and what they like, what they want, what they feel. That becomes the most important thing. The move towards a kind of self-absorption or self-fascination for me is, is fantastically demonstrated in the concept of the selfie. I mean, just think about it for a second. It's right there in the name, the selfie. But you go to this beautiful place that has a wonderful view, and what are you going to do? I'm not going to take a photo of the view. I'm going to take my photo with the view all blurry in the background because the most important thing isn't where I am. The most important thing is that it's me in the place that I am. And as long as you just see a blurry little bit of what's behind me, that's okay because you get to see me. Someone once said to me, the irony of this age is that you can have 500 friends on Facebook, but you have to take your own photo to show them what you look like. Now, I'm not just being an old man, giving one of those back-in-my-day speeches. I'm not even that old, and I still actually feel like it is my day. I really hope I haven't already had my day. But we do live in a world where the focus is becoming more and more on the individual, and the mindset, that mindset, is having a profound effect on how we live out our Christianity. Because Christianity is about loving others and considering others above yourself. Our faith is always supposed to be about others. The greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with heart, soul, body, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The golden rule that we sometimes say Jesus gives us. The growth of an individualized focus means that everything is geared towards how it makes us feel, how we should feel. And if something doesn't make us feel good, then we don't do it. I can think of many a parent who has torn the hair out as their rapidly growing child gets a job only to quit after day two, claiming they were made to do something that they didn't enjoy. Everything is geared towards whether or not we feel good. And although it may sound nice on the surface, we've been around long enough to know that life doesn't actually work that way. Last week, we looked at the faithfulness of Enoch and what it meant to walk with God. And we looked at just that small portion of Hebrews 11, which mentions Enoch's faithfulness. I have spent the rest of the week reflecting and thinking more about this whole chapter. And as we read through this great chapter of faith heroes, we are continually reminded by the writer to the Hebrews that they were people who were faithful despite their circumstances and despite their feelings. They were faithful despite how they may have felt at the time. They were faithful even when it involved great personal sacrifice. And they were faithful whether or not it made them feel good. They were faithful whether or not they individually benefited from that faithfulness. They were faithful above any need of self. Rahab is faithful even though it puts her life at risk. The Israelites are faithful marching around Jericho even though they must have felt like idiots. Abraham is faithful, even though he's full of uncertainty as God leads him away from all that is familiar. Abel is faithful, even though it costs him the best of his lambs. And on and on the list goes, as faithfulness is shown, regardless of personal circumstance or feeling or benefit. It's always about being faithful to God, always about other people, always about um, what God wants, no matter what the individual feelings may be. The world is not like that. The world is very much about doing the things that make you feel good. That's part of the reason we live in such a consumerist society, because companies have realized that if they tell us something makes us feel good, we'll go out and buy it, because it feeds our individual needs to feel great, 
30 years ago, you could buy a car, and uh, the slogan of the car would tell you basically what the car did. Um, the best built cars in the world was one of the slogans, or, or everything keeps going right. Now you buy a car to make you feel good and bring you happiness. I can't say for, uh, for legal reasons the, the make of the, the car, um, because I might get sued, and then I won't feel very good. But one luxury car manager, manufacturer had the slogan for a while, pure joy, pure joy. You thought it was a car, pure joy. Another one was sheer driving pleasure. What is the message? Buy this because this will bring you happiness. Nothing else matters but your feelings of happiness. The world tells us that the more money you have, the better you feel because the more money you can spend on the things that will make you feel good. We even call it retail therapy. Go and spend some money. Make yourself feel good. It comes down to, to doing what, what you want. And that's why people are often in a state of unhappiness or dissatisfaction because there are problems that they face that don't allow them to feel good and no amount of money can buy the good feelings that they need. No dollars can fix relationship issues. And because we're so conditioned to this fact that we believe everybody must feel good all of the time, we think that if we're not, then our lives are missing the point. Please don't misunderstand me. There's nothing wrong with feeling good. There's nothing wrong with enjoying nice things. Don't get me wrong. I like feeling good, and so does everyone that I know. I'm not suggesting that life is meant to be a misery. But we've been around long enough to know that we won't always feel good. And it's helpful to remember that. Because life, contrary to what we are told, is actually not about our feelings. It's not about feeling good because that's not how it is. I wonder how good Noah felt when he was being mocked by his neighbors as he built this boat. Or how good Moses felt wandering around the desert. Or how good Gideon felt when he was left with only 300 men. Life isn't always going to be about our good feelings. In fact, it's not about feelings at all. It's about faith. The problem really comes in when we get it the wrong way around. When we allow our feelings to determine our faith instead of our faith to determine our feelings. Now, I'm not saying that having faith makes you feel bad. In fact, it's just the opposite. What I'm saying is that if our faith is based on how we feel, we'll be in trouble. But if our feelings are based on our faith, that is when we start to find joy. That is when we start to find purpose in life. That is when true happiness in life becomes something of a reality for us. When even despite the circumstances we face, despite the difficulties that we go through, we know no amount of retail therapy is going to sort this out. But our faith in God stays strong. And from that faith, the feelings come. However, there are many people for whom God is only real and worth following if God actually makes them feel good. This kind of understanding in society has filtered so far into our Christianity that, that we sometimes believe that God is there, that God's purpose is actually to make us feel good. And God gets put into that same kind of consumerist box which makes me, is there to make me feel happy. Christianity and loyalty to God is often governed by how good God makes us feel. But the reality is that we won't always feel God. Mother Teresa famously journaled how she often did not feel God in that sense of, of having a, a close godly connection. But her faith wasn't governed by her feelings. Christianity is not something that is against us feeling good and enjoying ourselves. But all too often, our feelings actually determine our commitment to Christianity. 
Our feelings determine the attitude of faithfulness towards God. And that really is the wrong way around. How many times have you heard someone say, I don't believe in God because of something that's happened in my life, or, or God didn't do what I thought God should do. In other words, God didn't make me feel good. When we feel close to God, it's easy to be positive about Christianity. It's easy to ask God to help us in certain situations. It's easy to see the positive side of things and to, and to let our faith thrive. But if our feelings are not so good, then we ask all sorts of other questions. Where is God? Why isn't God there where I need Him? Why doesn't God answer me? Does God really even care? I was once planning a, a wedding with a, a, a bride and a groom, and um, this, this particular bride-to-be was insisting that it be an outdoor wedding. And, uh, and I, um, I had done everything I could try to dissuade her from that fact, but, uh, but she was insisting and, and that's what it was going to be. So I mentioned that we really do need to have a plan B because this was summertime and rain was a very, very distinct possibility. Her reply to me was, well, I've prayed about that and I am claiming good weather from God. She then said to me, I mean, if God can't give me good weather on my wedding day, then what's the point? What's the point of what? I wondered to myself. I was almost too scared to actually ask the question, what's the point of what? Because I guess she would have answered the point of being a Christian. If God can't make me feel good, then what's the point? It might sound funny to hear it in a story about a wedding, but, but I don't think it's an unfamiliar attitude in the world today. I think it's why there are so many people who don't see relevance for God because they don't see how God can make them feel good in the immediate sense or bring them the satisfaction that they desire. Because at the heart of it, the goodness that God gives comes from giving of ourselves. It comes from being faithful. It comes from... Uh, thinking less of ourselves and more of others. That's what's in it for us. Not an immediate magic wand, faithful genie, giving us everything we desire to make us feel good, but a goodness that comes from faithfulness, not the other way around. We need to make sure that our lives and our faith are not governed by our feelings, because those feelings are unreliable and they can change. It's a little like being in a relationship with your spouse. When we, uh, when we first start dating our spouses, the, the feelings are incredible. There's butterflies every time you, you hold hands and, and uh, there's nervousness at that first kiss, or in my case, at every kiss. Excitement at, at every possibility of, of time spent together. But as time passes, those feelings change. Some days the feelings are, are very strong. Some days there are still the butterflies. But some days there aren't. Because feelings are completely unreliable. Something man, as mundane as a bad night's sleep can drastically affect our feelings. But the feelings don't determine the relationship. Our decision to love determines the relationship. We choose to love each other. We choose to be faithful to each other no matter what the feelings. And from that choice, from those feelings, from, the, from that, that faithfulness, the feelings come, not the other way around. Then we would really be in trouble. But we often operate like that with our relationship with God. Depending on how we feel, our faith or relationship with God can be wonderful or maybe not so good. Faith must determine feelings, and that changes our outlook. That changes our focus. That changes our priorities from being inward-looking, from being, uh, uh, from, from being self-absorbed, if you can put it that way, 
to being God-glorifying. But how? In a world so dominated by an individualistic mindset that affects the very fabric of society and, and, and how we live our lives, how are we to understand the role of faith? Well, faith, says the writer to the Hebrews, is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see, which is the first key to living the correct balance and mindset in terms of our relationship with God lived out in this world. We believe when we do not see. It is a certainty that we will not always see, or more to the point, we will not always feel God. But regardless of those feelings, God requires that we believe He is there in whatever we face. Paul, the apostle, he's uh, imprisoned in Rome for two years. And during those two years, he's prevented from doing the things that he does best, the things that God has gifted him for. He cannot start churches. He cannot evangelize. He cannot go and preach the gospel. I can imagine that all he wanted to do was get out there and do those three things. And during those times, I'm sure there would have been many moments where he didn't feel God. In fact, he must have wondered what God was up to. And why should God be leaving him in prison when he could be going all over the world starting churches? It couldn't have made much sense to him at all. But despite those feelings, he trusts in God and in his purposes, even when he cannot feel him. Believing when he did not see. And at the end of the day, those prison years are what enabled Paul to put together so many of the letters in, in what we have in our New Testament today, going out into all the world, evangelizing and teaching people about what the good news is. I've told the story before of um, uh, Corrie ten Boom, the prisoner of war uh, in World War II in a, in a concentration camp. She and her sister Betsy were, um, were in this concentration camp at the height of the war. And Corrie particularly did not feel that God was with them at all the times. She often had to rely on Betsy's faith to pull her through. And at one time, they entered their barracks, and, and they were being bitten by fleas that had infested the beds. And Corrie was, was furious with God. Where was he? Why could she not feel him in this place? How could he have abandoned them? And Betsy got on her knees and began to thank God for the fleas. And Corrie thought that Betsy had gone mad. But she obeyed Betsy's instruction to do the same. And as it turns out, God used those fleas to enable them to be able to start a Bible study. They were able to hide Bibles in their rooms because no guards would enter the rooms because they were afraid of the fleas. We may not always feel God. We may not always understand God. We may not always know how God intends to use our situations to bring about His glory. And if we're governed by our feelings, then in those times, we don't understand. We cannot see a way through. And our faith will be in trouble. Yet the writer to the Hebrews reminds us that if we are to live by faith, then we are to be sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Maybe we could add what we do not feel. Those things are not about how you feel, but about how you choose to see things. If we do that, then we believe God is with us, that God is near, even when our feelings may be different. None of the heroes of faith in chapter 11, none of them at first saw what God was doing. We believe when we do not see. And secondly, we must obey when we don't understand. As I said, Hebrews 11 is regarded as this kind of faith hall of fame. There are 17 characters listed in that chapter. And the one thing that each of them has in common is that they obeyed God even when they didn't understand. I've already mentioned Noah. I mean, he's told to build a boat as long as one and a half football fields, three times as wide as our, our church and, and twice as high, because water was going to fall out of the sky, which hadn't occurred once in all of Noah's 600 years on earth. But he builds the boat. Abraham, told by God to execute his one and only son, the very son God miraculously had given him in the first place and promised that he would have many descendants from. 
Of course Abraham doesn't understand. Yet he obeys. Only at the altar is it revealed to him that there is a lamb provided for the sacrifice. If we are to live by faith, we must obey God even though we do not understand. The culture of living according to how we feel has done something to us whereby we've decided, we've started to decide when to obey God and when not to. And we obey God when it feels good to do so, and we do our own thing when the feelings go the other way. We are so good at justifying what we will obey and what we won't, and so often want to make God conform to what makes us feel good. And if that makes us feel good, then it must be God's will. Not that God is going to tell us to build an ark, but He does want us to lead lives that glorify Him and build His kingdom. Lives that do His will. Lives that, as we prayed in the Lord's Prayer, Bring his kingdom to bear on earth as it is in heaven. He doesn't want us to do our own thing. He does want us to love each other, to serve each other, to be obedient to what he has called us to do. Because amazingly, when we follow him and obey, even if we don't understand, it is then that we have the most wonderful sense of joy and peace and purpose in our lives because we are then being his hands. We are then living the life that he has purposed for us to live. We must obey when we don't understand. And thirdly, we are to persist in our faith, trusting him completely, even if we don't feel like it. We won't always feel like persisting with our faith. But then again, as I've said, it's not about feelings. We're told in verse 13 that even those heroes did not get to see all that they had hoped, but still they were faithful to the point of death. To live by faith is to trust even when we don't feel like it. We persist in what we believe. Take a look at Moses just for a second. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, we're told. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. If Moses' faith was driven by what he saw, or what could have made life easy, he would have stayed as an Egyptian of, of high status, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But Moses' eyes weren't focused on circumstances. They were focused on God going before him, on God leading him. Something he may not have understood, may not even have desired it, but the focus remained and the trust was complete. There will be times, friends, when we do not feel like focusing on Christ. Times when we do not feel Him or even sense a desire to follow His instructions or will at that time. It is at that important moment that we keep the picture of Jesus before us and that our faith must go beyond what we feel and must look to what we know Christ desires of us. As we do that, as we keep Jesus before us, something incredible happens. We take our eyes off ourselves and we place them onto Him. And we be truly begin to discover the joy and purpose of our lives. By faith He left Egypt. By faith He kept the Passover. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea. By faith, keeping His eyes on the invisible was Moses as he fulfills what God desires of his life. And there can be no greater reward, no better feeling than that. To have faith does not mean to live with no enjoyment. It means an enjoyment far greater and far deeper than what the world could ever promise or provide in what it says makes you feel good. To live by faith means a happiness that comes from knowing the true purpose for which you were created. It means knowing the beauty of the one who walks with God. We persist in our faith when we trust completely. <clears throat> we are living in unprecedented times. And there's certainly not going to be any changing of the fact that in society there is going to be more focus on personal pleasure and satisfaction than there ever has been before. But as Christians, we know that true joy and happiness and, and self-worth and purpose and contentedness 
comes not from what we feel, but from how we live out our faith. Being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. We believe, we obey, and we persist. Amen. And as we take communion this morning, we remember the faithfulness of Jesus. We remind ourselves that He was faithful regardless of our feeling or cost, going to the cross despite what it meant for Him. And as we take communion, we enter into that sacrifice and we pledge to live faithfully. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame. And He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Amen. Thank you, Ray. Ray and I will lead us through the liturgy this morning. I don't have the slides on the screen as uh, it's the same liturgy in order to be familiar. And so if you know it, feel free to join with Ray in the parts that he says. Um, whichever, whatever parts Ray says is the communal response together. Friends, look as you gather around this table. It is decked out with simple things, bread and wine. Gifts of the earth that remind us that like them, each one of us holds within us the fingerprints of God who made us. At this table, we are invited to draw up a chair and to dine with the saints and to feed our souls. Here we sit with the priests and prophets, prisoners and poets, whose testaments live in the pages of God's good book, along with all the friends and faithful guides who live within our hearts. So with this in mind, we raise our voices together with countless others saying, Holy, holy, holy God of all creation and life, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of God. Hosanna in the highest. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus took bread and wine and recreated them with a new purpose. We take this bread and as we break it, we remember Jesus' words, Take and eat, this is my body given for you. We take this cup, and as we raise it, we remember Jesus' words, Take and drink, this is my blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. We break bread together, and we, we become the living body of Christ. We share the cup together, we become agents of God's grace. We pray together the prayer of humble approach. Lord, we come to your table, trusting in your mercy and not in any goodness of our own. We are not worthy to gather the crumbs under your table, but your grace makes us worthy, and on that we depend. So feed us with the body and blood of Christ, we pray, resurrecting to life, to live a life you call us to, Amen. Friends, if you take hold of the bread that you have prepared at home, we say the body of Christ broken for you, take and eat it in remembrance of what Christ has done. The blood of Christ, which has been shed for you, take and drink. May it sustain you to eternal life in his kingdom. We spend a few moments in silent prayer.
We pray the prayer of thanksgiving. We thank you, Lord, that you have fed us in this sacrament, united us with Christ, and given us a foretaste of the heavenly banquet prepared for all people. Amen. Thank you, Ray. Let us close in prayer. We thank you, Jesus, for what we share in the sacrament of Holy Communion. That you were faithful despite feelings, despite knowing what pain was to be endured. You remained faithful to, to what God asked of you on the cross. And now you are seated at the right hand of God the Father. As we hear the words of Scripture, we remember this moment so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. We pray, Lord, for our own, each of our own lives, for the faithfulness that we desire to have. Sometimes, Lord, it gets mixed up with what we feel, and we allow our feelings to determine our faith. We pray and ask that you would enable us to be people who obey, who believe, who persist, whose faith determines feelings and not the other way around. We thank you for your word to us this morning and pray, Lord God, that you would create for each of us that sense of purpose and joy and happiness that comes from knowing that we walk with you, that sense, Lord, of feeling you are in control and our lives are in your hands. We commit ourselves to you in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, as I say, you are welcome to come for communion here in the church for the next hour or so. Uh, Ray, and, uh, and Ray and myself would be waiting for you. We'll spend some time in prayer. We'll give the, uh, the elements of the bread and the wine to you, all with the COVID-safe policies that are, are part of the plan we've signed on to. Feel free to come down for the next hour. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all and those whom we love this day and forevermore. Amen.